Welcome to An Examined Education, a podcast from the Cambridge School, a classical Christian school in San Diego, California, where we examine an education that prepares students to think well, love rightly, and live wisely. Welcome back to An Examined Education. This episode rounds out the series on changing perspectives. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with a Cambridge teacher's assistant who I first met and knew as a Cambridge parent, uh, but she also comes from a whole career in teaching. So you'll get to hear what it's like to go from that parent role and then get to peek behind the curtain as a teacher's assistant. Please stay tuned. You won't want to miss it. Carolyn McClaskey, it is so good to have you here. This is a blast. It is so good to be here. <laughs> so um, I do enjoy that we share our love for music and we get to sing the hymns with the kids. So I take Mondays and Fridays and you're there for Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays. Got it. It That's is awesome. an absolute delight. It is, isn't it? Uh-huh. And the kids are so like sweet. The sound that they make is like pleasant. It's rich. It's amazing. And uh, what a great way to start the mornings. It's awesome. So tell me about um, like a little bit about yourself and your history and then how you kind of got here. Absolutely. So um, my history is I've always had a passion for education and theater. And um, in school, I studied English. And so from there, I got my single subject uh, English credential and taught for Ooh, about seven years between high school and middle school teaching English. Nice. And it was it was a delight. Um, every once in a while, I'd kind of pivot back and forth with my theater love where I would direct or musically direct. Um, but I would always come back to education. Uh, after having my girls, I had the great privilege of getting to be home with them. And uh, it's been so wonderful. So my oldest started at Cambridge when she was in junior kindergarten. So four years old. And then my youngest is just starting this year. Um, so my husband and I just kind of, you know, knowing that I've loved education and again, getting to have the, the great joy of being with my girls for so long, but with both of them being at Cambridge, um, I knew it was kind of time to go back into the education fields. And so here I am. Nice. As a teacher's aide? As a teacher's aide. Great. Sixth grade. Wow. Yes. Well, that's awesome because you were kind of in the High school slash middle school. So they're right on the cusp of that. That's they, I, my last couple of years were spent in sixth and seventh grade. Oh, and so perfect. sixth graders, I just, I adore them. Nice. Yeah. They can be rascally. Sometimes. Oh, and it's so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Keep well, you on your toes. How did you find out about Cambridge? How did you bring your girls here? Interesting stories. So again, being a public school teacher and living in the community that we did, I just assumed that my kids were going to go down the street. And um, my husband uh, had a different idea. Okay. And <laughs> so when we were first looking for preschools, when our youngest was two, he had stumbled upon Cambridge and kind of like put it on the back burner and said, you know, when she's when she's old enough, we're going to go and check it out. And so lo and behold, came around the time we we came and we toured. On the tour, I was blown away by what the students were able to get from their teachers. Um, and it's not for lack of what teachers would like to do with the schools that I came from, but it was resources. Mm -hmm. It was time. It was um, being able to fully commit and invest in each student because there were small classes. Um, and then, of course, with the component of looking at them as a whole individual um, made in the image of God. I mean, it I couldn't, I, I couldn't turn away from this. And um, both my husband and I knew that this is where we wanted to send our girls. And five years later, we are absolutely invested in the commitment. That's awesome. That's awesome. So 
you've experienced the Cambridge School as a parent and have seen things from from that side, and now you get to see behind the curtain and how everything's rolling. What are what are some differences, or what are some things that you maybe expected were going to be a certain way, and they were not that way? Oh, I always knew that the teachers, the aides, everybody works so hard. Um, but I think seeing behind the curtain and the amount of um, effort that's put into even the smallest details, um, such as a bookmark. And again, as a parent, I remember my daughter bringing home the bookmark and, and saying, oh, how cool. We'll put a little, put this aside and <laughs> as a keepsake. But to know what actually went into the detail of that from Deborah Hom designing the bookmark to the printing of the bookmark to the loving labor of cutting <laughs> the bookmark. Um, and I know that sounds so sort of um, trivial, but it is just seeing how every single detail is thought out with uh, such intention mm -hmm. and knowing that that bookmark serves a purpose. And uh, I know we talked about uh, in our training, and again, there was a, a three-week training leading up to this. And um, I just was reinvigorated with the idea of getting to be a part of this community, not only as a parent, mm -hmm. um, which I still am, right. <laughs> um, but getting to know that I have some type of little role in this and uh, how their overall arch is community over self, community over individual. And so again, looking at how uh, is my work going to impact those down the line? Yeah. Um, and again, even if it's sharpening pencils, um, can I say, I, also, I went home to change after I'd cried multiple times after leaving. <laughs> and I was scrolling through my email and uh, Crossway, their newsletter came and it, it said something about like how your work is a form of your image of God. And so mm. I was like, let me just read this. It says work. And it was talking about just a little analogy of Martin Luther. He came across some bricklayers and he had asked one, you know, what, what are you doing? And he said, I'm laying bricks. And he went to the second one and he, he asked, what are you doing? And he said, I'm building a cathedral. And I was the perfect reminder to me that again, every little step, every little task is for the greater good of our community, for our school, and obviously to glorify God. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, and that was like the opening little paragraph. And I was like, oh Lord, <laughs> this awesome. is it right here. Like again, me sharpening pencils serves a purpose because right. me sharpening pencils is allowing my student to then learn and take notes. And it's like wonderful you're sharpening pencils, but you're saving Western civilization. I am. I am. And sharpening minds. That's it. And sharpening, sharpening minds. Do you get it? <laughs> I do. That's why I said it. <laughs> I <know>. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I love this conversation so far. Um, we're just going to take a quick break right now and hear from Jim Hamilton, our resident classicist. Welcome to the arena. I'm Jim Hamilton, language chair at the Cambridge School. And today, we'll be talking about returns through an anecdote from the classical world. This is the story of Alcibiades' glorious return to Athens after years spent in exile. Alcibiades, the son of Clinius, was a promising Athenian statesman and commander during the middle of the Peloponnesian War, a nearly 30-year conflict between Greece's superpowers, Athens and Sparta. Ancient sources tell us that he was handsome and an incredibly persuasive speaker, 
unsurprising, as he was a student of the famous Socrates. They also mention that he had an ever-so-slight stutter, which worked to his advantage because that tiny flaw made him more relatable to his fans and charming even to his opponents. He had risen to prominence as a popular voice in the assembly shortly following the Peace of Nicias in 421 BC. This was a very shaky agreement between Sparta. Technically, the terms were broken right off the bat, as both sides refused to concede certain territories that had been explicitly laid out in the treaty. Alcibiades strongly felt that Athens should take a more hawkish posture toward their currently non-combative rival, and he urged his fellow citizens to continue to gain beneficial territories and allies that would cause the Spartans to fear them, all the while maintaining the bare minimums of their peace treaty. In 418, Alcibiades was elected general and fronted an alliance between Athens and Argos, a longtime enemy of Sparta. He would even lead Athenians in the Battle of Mantinea, where they supported the Argives in fighting the city of Tegea. Spartans were actually also present in support of the Tegeans, technically making this battle a major breach of their peace. Yet, the Spartans and the Athenians tacitly chose to overlook this in order to uphold the general non-aggression currently between them. Though the Argives and Athenians lost this battle, Alcibiades did show strong promise as a commander and had proved himself a talented negotiator in the alliance with Argos. A few years later, tensions between the two city-states was in no way better. In 415, Alcibiades famously proposed to expand the Athenian Empire past the Aegean all the way over to Sicily. A few years later, tensions between Athens and Sparta were in no way better. In 415, Alcibiades famously proposed to expand the Athenian Empire past the Aegean and all the way over to Sicily. It was done ostensibly for the aid of Agesta, an old colony and ally of the Athenians, though older, wiser minds were generally against this idea, baffled as to why the Athenians should leave their city unprotected with Sparta so close and Sicily so far away. And even more so, in the event that they were unsuccessful, this may add more enemies to Athens' already long list of rivals. Nevertheless, the persuasive Alcibiades prevailed in an assembly, convincing the Athenians to send a staggeringly large force to Augusta's aid, and also quietly for the growth of their city's power. The night before the expedition, however, many Hermi throughout the city were destroyed, and Alcibiades, who had a reputation for throwing raucous parties wherein supposed cultic mysteries were practiced, was named as culprit. For reference, Hermi were statues and property markers that bore the face of Hermes and were treated as holy symbols throughout the city. This would have been a major sacrilege to do anything to deface or destroy. Even Thucydides, who was no fan of Alcibiades, blames Alcibiades' political enemies for this act. He even poses the question, why would he do such a thing when he was getting what he wanted? The majority of his supporters were going along with him on this expedition to Sicily. So, if they accused Alcibiades of this sacrilegious crime in absentia, he would have to be recalled and tried before a jury that would likely have none of his fellow sympathizers. Despite pleading for an immediate trial to prove his innocence, Alcibiades was denied. And within the month, this exact situation played out. Alcibiades was accused and recalled from the expedition to be put on trial. Alcibiades, predicting the likelihood of an unfair trial that could cost him his life, jumped ship at a stop on the way home 
and fled to Sparta. Though the Spartans never fully trusted and accepted him, Alcibiades proved himself an invaluable source of information. He divulged all kinds of secrets that Athens had feared the Spartans would discover. The most egregious of these was revealing the tactical position of Decalia. This was a small silver mining town northwest of Athens that was easily fortified and could provide Sparta with a permanent foothold in Attica. In fact, upon Athens' next breach of the peace treaty, the Peloponnesian War began anew. Sparta immediately seized Decalia, forcing the Athenians to stay behind their walls, no longer able to farm on their own land. They had to rely wholly on imported grain at extremely high cost. On top of all of that, the Sicilian expedition that he had planned and promptly left, though that part at least was no fault of his own, was an utter disaster, wherein Athens lost 40,000 men, essentially an entire generation of their young, fighting-aged men. And, as expected by some of the more careful thinkers, this gained them new, fierce adversaries among the many Sicilian city-states, particularly the mighty Syracusans, who promptly allied themselves with the Spartans. Alcibiades' relations with the Spartans soon soured, though likely this was a result of mistrusting an Athenian, especially after the resumption of hostilities, rumors did abound of an affair with a wife of one of the Spartan kings. Forced to flee yet again, this time Alcibiades found safety in Persia. Embittered by his treatment in Sparta, now he turned all his efforts toward thwarting them, largely in hopes of gaining favor back home in Athens. Although he formed generally good partnerships with several Persian satraps, they wanted nothing to do with helping either Athens or Sparta, as they were still quite mindful of these two superpowers defeating them half a century earlier. Yet, Alcibiades Alcibiades' smooth talking got him what he wanted once again, sort of. He was able to start conversations with some of his old friends in the Athenian fleet, as they were commonly passing by Persian territory in the Hellespont while transporting their imported grain. Alcibiades lured his former countrymen with some half-truths. He reminded them that he was a brilliant tactician and winsome statesman who was given an unfair shake. Now he could be their savior who could bring them much-needed funds from the vast treasuries of Persia. It was clear that he was friends with the Persians, but he hid the fact that the satraps had already flat out refused to provide any money to their former foes. The fleet first chose to take Alcibiades back, then those in the city eventually recalled him in order to be reinstated as general formally. I'm leaving out some juicy details to focus on Alcibiades here, but the Athenian fleet was first to take Alcibiades back, and then those in the city eventually recalled him as well. Alcibiades was too hesitant at this time in 411 to return to a city that had betrayed him and that he had betrayed in return. He wanted to ensure his worth before he came back in what he hoped would be a grand return. Fortunately for Alcibiades, his need as both a commander and negotiator was just as important as Persia's money, and he had enough time to prove his merit in these gifts before the Athenians learned that there was no way Persia was going to help them. Over the next four years, he won two incredibly important victories at Abydos and Cyzicus, and negotiated with three major cities allied to Sparta, convincing them to join the Athenian side. All of this coming at little cost to Athenian life, and providing valuable food supplies and cash that he wasn't going to get from the Persians. By spring of 407, Alcibiades finally felt comfortable and valued enough to return to his home city. He still took his time sailing back, stopping at several islands along the way, gathering a sum of a hundred talents to be given to the city as a gift. Within a day of the city, he sent out ships ahead of him just to ensure that the Athenians were excited for his return and that this wasn't just an elaborate plot to finally do away with him. Upon these reassurances, he arrived at the Piraeus 
Athens port and saw a multitudinous crowd gathered to give him a hero's welcome. The Athenians officially elected him Strategos Autocrator, supreme commander of both land and sea forces. In one final display of proving his merit, he led the holy procession to the neighboring city of Eleusis to perform yearly sacrifices to the goddess Demeter. This was the first time the Athenians had felt confident enough to do this in seven years, ever since the Spartans had fortified Decalia at his own guidance. By all appearances, Alcibiades return would be the salvation of Athens. Unfortunately, the story did not end so well for either Alcibiades or Athens. Shortly afterward, Alcibiades faced his first decisive defeat at the Battle of Notium. How quickly the Athenians would recall his slights against them, and as his winning streak was broken, so too was the influx of Bunny, another stark reminder that he promised and couldn't deliver on those funds from Persia. This time, Alcibiades exiled himself away from any major city, moving to an estate he had gained in his friendly negotiations with the peoples of the Thracian Chersonese. Though he would try to offer his advice one last time to the Athenians at the onset of a battle that was near to his home, he was shooed away by the new Athenian generals, who, fe who feared that if they accepted his help, the glory would be his, but if they lost, they would be the ones to blame. That battle, Battle of Aegospotomy in 404 BC, would be the end of the Athenian Empire. The Spartans won and just several months later accepted a formal surrender. As for Alcibiades, assassins came for him several years after that, likely sent by the Spartans. As the story goes, they feared to fight the man face to face, so the assassins set fire to his home. Burned and blinded by the smoke, Alcibiades rushed out, sword in hand, only to be brought down in a shower of arrows. I apologize for the dark twists at the end of this momentarily glorious return. I am not suggesting any such foreboding with the happy returns that are the focus of this podcast. This is simply a story that must be told, and from which many lessons can be learned. Even the ancients, Thucydides and Plutarch alike recognized great blunders that provide teachable moments. The Roman biographer Cornelius Nepos gives Alcibiades a very generous read. Although Alcibiades may have done many things that harmed his fellow citizens when he defected to Sparta, the Athenians were also to blame for pushing one of their most capable men to the brink. Had he not been thrust towards taking such desperate measures, would Athens have had in him their greatest asset instead of, at one time, an exceptionally competent enemy? The exercise of considering alternative outcomes is an especially fun one in Alcibiades' case. It reminds people of today they should not behave in the same fickle manner as the jealous Athenians, and Alcibiades' death only proves how much his influence was both feared and valued. This is The Arena. I'm Jim Hamilton. Until next time. Now that you're a teacher's assistant, what advice would you give to new families with young students that could really help their kids or really help their family? I think my first would be to get involved um, join the community, become a vital part of it. Um, nice. Just again, to kind of see your own inner workings of the school, um, but getting involved where you can participate in either classroom activities or uh, any type of activity that takes place in the foyer or the um, courtyard. Uh, it, it just allows you to have your own glimpse behind the curtain and to feel that you're truly a part of it. My other piece of advice would be to learn alongside your child, um, again, to show that wonder and curiosity and sort of show them to elicit the same wonder and curiosity. I always joke that, you know, whatever my daughter is learning in third grade, I am too, because again, I didn't have the Cambridge um, learning experience growing yeah. up. 
And so again, if I come at it with wonder, she then has this sort of renewed excitement for whatever they're learning in science, whether it's energy or motion, force. Um, she gets excited to come alongside me and share that excitement. So I'd say get involved and come alongside your student as they're learning. Perfect. Those are great things. And come to all the advancement events. Plug. <laughs> Carolyn, I am so glad that you got to come today. Uh, longtime listener, right? Yeah. First time caller or guest <laughs> or guest. First time guest. And uh, this has been really fun. So thank you so much. I appreciate you coming on. Oh, thank you for letting me share. Thank you for listening to An Examined Education. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, reach out to the Advancement Office. Check out our website and schedule a tour at cambridgeclassical.org. Until next time, think well, love rightly, and live wisely.